Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time that we can share together. And I pray that wherever you are today, that our time spent together in God's word will help you in your walk with Christ. If you're just joining us for the first time, my name is Charles and I'm the pastor here of Hickory Rock Baptist Church in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And I'm sincerely excited about walking through this message today with you. Won't you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll jump into Haggai chapter two, verses 10 through 23. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you and we thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. And Father, I pray that during this time you will speak mightily to us, that you will give us open ears and open hearts to receive your word and that we will sit humbly under the authority of it. Lord, I pray that you will just allow us to be nourished by your word and that we will take it and hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And Father, I pray that you will empower us through your Holy Spirit to follow you more humbly, more faithfully, more joyfully, and more obediently. Lord, we love you, and we again thank you for Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So today, loved ones, we're going to be finishing the book of Haggai. We're going to be looking at Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a very vivid memory that I have. I remember being an uh, older child, maybe an early teenager, and I was with my dad, who was also a pastor, and we were going to visit a church member of his who was in the hospital in the town where we lived. And so as we're going to the hospital, we found out where this individual was, what room they were in, and my dad tells me that he knows a shortcut that will get us to the right floor and the right side of the hospital that we needed to be on, and that it will save us a lot of time. So we go in a stairwell, we go through a maze of hallways, and we come out a door on the other side. Now, here's the important and interesting thing to understand. When we came out the door on the other side, we were in an area of the hospital that neither of us had ever seen or been in before. Everything was white. It was very clean. It was almost as if we were in a science fiction movie. And we go around one corner and we see a bunch of doctors and nurses and masks and scrubs, and they look at us and we get the impression very quickly that we are not supposed to be there. And they tell us that in no uncertain terms. One of the nurses comes running towards us. She prevents us from coming any further and she says, you cannot be in here. This is a sterilized area. And this is what we had to learn very quickly, loved ones. Even though we were there that day at the hospital to do good work, there was something that was not quite right. You see, we ended up being in a place that we were not allowed to be in because we would have defiled it. We would have contaminated it. And us doing that, us defiling that area, would have undercut the very good work that those doctors and nurses were trying to do. And we see something very similar in this last scene today from Haggai chapter 2. We see that Israel is hard at work and they are doing good work, but something is undercutting and defiling the work that they are doing. But even amid all of this, we see where God promises to cleanse Israel, to bless them, and where he renews the messianic promise that they were holding to. We're going to see two big picture things today in these words from Haggai. First of all, we're going to see where God calls on us to see our internal problems. And secondly, we'll see where God demonstrates his faithfulness through eternal 
promises. And so, loved ones, let's dive in and let's walk through this final passage from Haggai, and let's allow the Spirit to speak to us and to tell us how we can abide by this message today. So let's start by looking at Haggai chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, and it says this, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of Armies says. Ask the priests for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, or oil, or any other food, does it become holy? And the priests answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these things, do these things then become defiled? And the priest answered, yes, they become defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people and so is the nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. Now, from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to uh, a grain or a heap measure, uh, came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. And when one came to a wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, but you did not turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. But from this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. But from this day forward, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. And on that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So loved ones, since we had a little bit of time off in our study of Haggai, let me just reset the stage for us one more time. We know that Israel, the Hebrews, were allowed to return home to Judah, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, but we know that they failed to do that for 18 years until God spoke through the prophet Haggai to tell the people to do the work that he called them to do, to prioritize him, to take him seriously. And the people responded and did just that. But even as they worked on the temple, there were many who felt as though this task was meaningless and pointless. They felt as though the new temple would never be good enough to replace the one that was lost. And so God spoke again and reaffirmed his promise, his presence with the people, and promised to make the temple, the new temple, even more glorious than the one before. And so two months after that most recent message from, Haggai, from God to Haggai, God speaks again and he gives two more messages to relay to Israel. And the first of these messages calls on Israel to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror. God tells Haggai, 
to ask the priests for a ruling, to get the priests to weigh in on a matter of law and ceremony and give an answer. And the issues that Haggai puts before the priests are very simple. Anyone who was even remotely acquainted with the law would have understood and known the answer to these questions. But God brings these simple questions up to get Israel to understand a very important point, that things still were not quite right. So Haggai asks the priests two questions. The first one is this. If a man is carrying something that is consecrated, that is holy, and the uh, in his robe, and his robe touches something else, does that other thing then become holy? And the answer is simple. No. Holiness is not transferred this way. Let me give it to you in another uh, illustration. Imagine that you have a child who is healthy and well, and you send that child to school where they are surrounded by sick children. Does your child's good health get transferred to the sick children? And the answer is no. It goes the other way around. And that leads us to the second question that Haggai asks. If someone touches something unclean, like a corpse, and then they become defiled and unclean themselves, and that unclean person goes and touches something else, does that third object then become unclean? And the answer is a resounding yes. Even though holiness is not transferred by touch, contamination and defilement and uncleanliness is. It makes me think of something my wife is doing right now. She's learned that she's got a allergy to gluten. And we've learned that even just a little bit of gluten in her food will cause very bad reactions. It's just the smallest amount of something that can come along and contaminate whatever it is that she's eating. And the same is true with us and our cleanliness and our holiness. And we see in verse 14 why God is bringing these things up. Even though the people are back in the promised land, and even though they are obediently working on the temple, God needs the people to understand that they are still dirty with sin. We remember back in chapter 1 when God listed off all of the punishments that he had to bring down on Israel because they were disobeying his command to rebuild the temple. We remember the droughts and the lacking and the wanting that they were suffering because of their disobedience. And God here reminds us of these things in verse 17. He says, I had to hit you with all of these plagues, and yet that didn't even get your attention. You still did not turn back to me. And here is the point that God is making with these statements and with these questions. The people are contaminated with sin, but now they're doing very important work. They are rebuilding the temple. But the question then becomes this, how can the people rebuild the temple, this sacred and holy and consecrated place, if they themselves are contaminated. Remember how contamination and defilement is transferred. And just think about the situation that the people find themselves in. They are contaminated with sin. But in order to be cleansed of that sin, what must they do? They must offer a sacrifice at the temple. But they can't offer a sacrifice at the temple because the temple is not yet rebuilt. And they can't continue rebuilding the temple because all the work that they are doing on it is doing what? It's defiling it. It's contaminating it. 
And we see here they are trapped in a vicious cycle. As long as the people are defiled, their work on the temple is defiling it. And this seems as though it is a truly hopeless situation. And it would have been if God had not intervened. We see in verse 19 where God promises blessing and cleansing to Israel. He tells them that he is going to fix their situation. He is going to override their contamination. Even though there is no evidence that this has taken place, there is no bounty, there is no abundance, there is no visible sign that this blessing and promise is going to come to be, God says it will be so. And this is a powerful thing for us to consider. For us to see and understand that God would simply wipe the slate clean and bless the people even though they did not deserve it. And God does that because that is precisely the kind of God that he is. And loved ones, this is precisely what he does for us. We were in sin and hopelessly so without any hope of being fixed. But when God confronts us with the bleak reality of our sin and our situation, he does not rub our faces in it. He does not lord it over us in a very mean way. He doesn't write us off. Instead, God shows us our sin, and then he invites us to come to him. He shows us our sin so we will understand who we are and why we need him. And when we realize that, and when we repent of our sin and take that step of faith toward God, he blesses us, he cleanses us, he restores us. And he does this through Christ. And he does this because God is able, because he is willing, but most importantly, loved ones, because he loves us. And we know that Christ's blood cleanses us completely of our sin, of our guilt, of our defilement, of our contamination. And we know that Christ alone, nothing else, can do this. Christ alone is the only thing who can make the unclean clean or the defiled holy. But just as much as we know that, we need to understand this. Though we have salvation and forgiveness through Christ, we still wrestle with sin. And if we do not confess that sin, if we continue in it, if we try to hide it, then that sin can taint and defile the work for God that we are trying to do. And it doesn't matter if these things are sins of uh, commission, things that we do, or sins of omission, things that we should have done but didn't. Sin is a sin is a sin. What we need to understand is this. We must search our hearts diligently and we must see if there are sins or any other things in our hearts that are robbing us of the intimacy with God that he desires we have. We have to see if there's anything in our hearts that is holding us back, that is undermining, undercutting the work for God that we are trying to do. And if we search our hearts and we see that there are things in there that we are not giving over to God, then we must ask ourselves this question. What blessings are we forfeiting? Because we refuse to give God the sins that he so desperately wishes to cleanse us from. And that brings us 
Now to verses 20 through 23, this second message from God that Haggai receives. And this message is specifically addressed to a man named Zerubbabel. Now we've heard this name Zerubbabel a number of times as we've been going through Haggai, the book of Haggai. Uh, each message that Haggai received, he was to communicate to Zerubbabel and to the people. But this final message here is specifically for Zerubbabel. Now, we know at this time that Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. Uh, basically, what's happening is this. The Persian Empire has claims on Israel and Judah, and uh, uh, Zerubbabel is the man in charge of running the day-to-day -day operations in Judah. And because of that, Zerubbabel is the closest thing to a ruler or to a king that Israel or Judah will ever have from this point forward. But here, God gives a message of hope to Zerubbabel. God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn the worldly kingdoms and this worldly system. And this should sound very familiar to us because just a few verses before this in chapter two, God promised to shake the world to bring glory to his house and peace to Jerusalem. And the repetition of these phrases helps us understand that these two events will be related. God's shaking of the earth and his overturning of the wicked worldly kingdoms and this wicked worldly system will be for the purpose of bringing glory to his name and to his house and peace to the land. And this is incredible in itself, but God does something even more amazing here in this passage. He makes Zerubbabel a key part of this promise. We learn that Zerubbabel will be a critical piece in these things coming to be. God says to him, I have chosen you, Zerubbabel. You will be my signet ring. And we remember that a signet ring is one that a king would wear that would have his official seal on it. And the king would take that ring and would stamp it on documents and on decrees to make those things valid and binding and official. And so God is saying that he is going to use Zerubbabel to ensure that this earth-shaking, kingdom-overturning, glorious day of the Lord comes to be. And at this point, we should be wondering, who is Zerubbabel? He must be very important. What did he do to deserve this kind of honor? And the answer is nothing. Zerubbabel did nothing to earn or merit this favor and this promise. And in fact, this promise really has nothing to do with Zerubbabel at all. This isn't even a new promise in the first place. Here we see God renewing an ancient promise. Here he is renewing a promise that he made long ago to Eve in the garden, a promise that Abraham later inherited, and even after that, a promise that David inherited. You see, loved ones, Zerubbabel's only claim to fame is this. He is a descendant of David. And if you remember in one of those important Bible passages, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that one day David would have a son who would be perfectly righteous and who would rule forever over an eternal kingdom. And so here God is reiterating, renewing to Zerubbabel and to Israel that his promised Messiah would still come. That perfect son that God promised 
Eve and Abraham and David who would come to defeat the serpent and to make all things right once more, that promised son would still come. And now we learn he would come through Zerubbabel's line. And loved ones, that is exactly what happens. If you look in Matthew chapter 1 and that famous genealogy of Jesus, the royal line of succession for the throne of Israel, we find this beginning in verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Loved ones, as we know, the entire story of the Bible is about Jesus from start to finish. And we know that it is in Jesus that all of God's promises to make things right, to save us, to bring salvation, to bring peace, that all of these promises are fulfilled. And Zerubbabel's role in God's plan was simply to keep David's family line going. The point of the message to Zerubbabel is not about him. It's about one who would come after him. And from Zerubbabel, the signet ring, would one day come Jesus, who the author of Hebrews reminds us is the exact image and expression of God. But here's the catch. There's almost 600 years between Zerubbabel and Jesus. Zerubbabel obviously would not live to see God's plan to come into its fullness. But this we know about God's promises. We know that they have no expiration date. They are from everlasting to everlasting. And this promise to Zerubbabel also reminds us of another critical fact. It reminds us that God is the hero of the story, not us. The story is about him, not us. And in fact, after receiving this promise, Zerubbabel disappears from the scriptures. We don't see him pop up outside of these genealogies at any other point in time. He plays his part and he goes on to rest with his fathers. It makes me think of the famous line William Shakespeare wrote in his play, As You Like It, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. And loved ones, we learn a very important lesson from this. We learn that in this life, we play our role. We do faithfully what God sets before us, and we trust that he will keep his word. Now, while we do that, we must remember this. We are not guaranteed to see the fruits of our labors. We might not understand or appreciate the role that we play, and we certainly will not understand the trials and the difficulties we endure, but we do not give up the work. We stay faithful, and we stay focused, and we stay committed. For God is using us and everything around us for his glory and for his purposes. And if we believe this to be true, if we believe that God is working in us as an individuals and in this church as a whole, even working through these things after we are gone, the question then becomes this, what are we doing now to faithfully lay a foundation for what will come after us? 
And now, loved ones, as we come to the end of this short, powerful book, we must ask ourselves the questions that Haggai forced Israel to ask. And these are important questions. We must ask ourselves, are we properly prioritizing God? Are we living out this prioritization through obedience and faithfulness? Or are we trusting in ourselves and seeking our own glory and our own fortunes? Do we remember the past in a way that honors God and gives hope to the present and to the future? Or do we let nostalgia paralyze us and keep us from doing what God wants us to do? Are we handing over to God all of the sins and things that would distract us from him? Or are we letting sin defile the good work that we are trying to do for him? And lastly, are we faithfully playing our part in his story, seeking to glorify him in all we do? Or are we robbing him of glory by seeking to make the story about us? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this message. And Father, we thank you for the fact that you do see our internal condition and that you force us to see it as well. And despite our sin and fallenness, Lord, you have loved us enough to offer us cleansing and promises of hope and salvation and a future. If only we come to you through your son, Christ. Father, we thank you for the eternal faithfulness that you have demonstrated through your promises and how these promises never run out and how these promises remind us and give us hope for all the things that we are doing and enduring in our lives. Father, would you help us to be faithful to you? Would you help us to cling to your promises and to your word? And Lord, would you help us to hand over the sins that so easily defile us and ensnare us? And Lord, would you help us to share the hope and the promise of your love with a world that so desperately needs it. We love you, Father, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.